This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 63. And the quote of the day is from Orison Martin, who said, No man could ideally be successful until he has found his place. Like a locomotive, he is strong on the track, but weak anywhere else. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast, and I'm really, really excited about this interview today. We have Brian Nevin from the band Big Head Todd and the Monsters, and if you don't know about Big Head Todd and the Monsters, they're a rock band that formed in 86 in Colorado. They've released a number of albums since 89, and they just celebrated their 20th anniversary of the platinum record Sister Sweetly here in the United States, and they've developed a sizable following, especially in the mountain states and uh and but all over all over the country and i've been listening to this band for years i think i've been listening to them for you know probably 15 years or so so my brother introduced me to them years ago and they've always been one of my favorite bands so i'm really really excited to have brian here and we're going to get all into the into the band and how they formed and and uh just you know how they how they attained all this success and also what he thinks about how it is now uh, about sustaining success as a band and also creating your own success with this DIY model that a lot of people are going into with the, with the record business in the state that it's in. So this is a really cool interview from somebody who's been doing it for a long time and continues to do it. And we're going to get right into it. Mr. Brian Nevin, Brian, what's going on, my man? How you doing today? I'm doing great. How you doing, Nick? I'm doing well, man. Thanks so much for, for taking the time to do this. I really do appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, you know what? I agree, man. I agree. There's, uh, you know, ever since we've met, I've been commenting on how, how nice of a person you are and how nice you are to talk Thank to. You. So. Well, I, I always appreciate people that love the drums, and, yeah. and you do. So. That and I do. <laughs> that I do. All right. So speaking of drums, I always... You know, that's what we're here for. We're here to, to talk about some drums. I always like to hear how people got into drums, because it's always interesting to me to hear the backstory. So how did you get into playing? Well, you know, I was uh, one of those ADD kids, and my banging on everything in the house, and my folks decided to try and parlay it into something worthwhile. Signed me up for some drum lessons when I was probably five, six years old, and uh, that led into the school band, and... Uh, just kept going from there. Um, I think it was always kind of a hobby for me until I met uh, in high school Todd and Rob, the two guys I play with currently and have always played with in the Big Head Todd the Monsters Band. And we started a little, you know, garage band in high school. And uh, believe it or not, I'm still playing in my high school garage band 30 years later. So, so awesome. Yeah. That's you know. so awesome. You know, you're not. Feel very fortunate about that because we kind of grew up together, right? And uh, you know, I learned we all kind of cut our teeth together musically. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I interviewed um, OAR, and they're the same way. That you know, they all grew up in the same town and yeah. and uh, played in high school, which is which is an amazing thing to me that that bands last that long because they say that the average band lasts four to five years, and I think like five percent of them last past ten. Right. So, so I mean, to make it thirty years is a, is a, is quite the feat. Now you had mentioned uh, back in in high school and even before that you were doing you were doing band and stuff. So you you went the 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 traditional route of 
going through and learning all of your rudiments and learning, you know, to read and all that stuff? Yes. Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, I was kind of the last generation of guys, you know, taught traditional grip, real classic um, a rudimental drumming, snare drumming. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when I started playing a drum kit, it was jazz. I was, it was, that, that's all that really was uh, important to the, uh, uh, at least to the educated world. So um, I kind of, uh, I remember my first uh, music teacher on a drum kit um, gave me a tape of the Buddy Rich Band and said, play like this. <laughs> and to this day, I'm still trying to play like I was going to say, it's like, yeah, right, thanks. <laughs> so the father said hi early. Right, right. <laughs> so now, what do you think of the the approach now of how people were learning drums versus how they were learning it before? Uh, because I, I think that everybody just, not I don't want to say everybody, but a fair amount of the, the people that are coming up now just listen to the radio and are, sure. are self-taught and wear that sort of like a badge of honor that it's like, no, I never took lessons and I don't know my rudiments and, you know, and all that. What's your take on that? No, it's funny. I, I, uh, I, Probably like most teenagers, you know, and guys in their early twenties when I got into rock and roll drumming, um, you know, it was kind of um, for me. I really got away from a lot of that, the traditional training, and uh, just you know was cocky and played what I want, what I heard, and, and I have no problem with that. But it's funny now I find myself getting back, and I'm practicing the rudiments today. That's what I do. I get back to the basics, and right. when I talk to guys and kids about drumming. I give them the rudiments, and I say, play these. And, um, you know, I'll sit down and just uh, work through all the rudiments, um, you know, between each limb. You know, mm-hmm. right hand, left foot, left hand, right foot. Because it's, it's just that muscle training and that, that uh, basic flow of, of playing those patterns is all I do, and that's all drumming is. So, um, you know, I, I really think music is something that comes from the heart, so... I, I don't knock anybody for playing any way they want to play or whatever inspires them. Some of my favorite drummers are not technically, uh, would, wouldn't be considered technically very proficient, but they right. have an amazing feel. Mm-hmm. Actually, I love a lot of the stuff that you hear, uh, drum tracks that were tracked by guys who weren't drummers. You know, that's Stevie yeah. Wonder tracks and all those guys. When, when I hear that stuff, I'm like, what is that? Yeah. Because a lot of times they come from a different approach and a different way to make the song feel. And sometimes I need to get out of my box. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. So, so um, I really think, uh, you know, play whatever you want to play. You know, what inspires you, go for it. But if I was going to uh, tell somebody if they want to learn to play drums, I'd say start with the rudiments. Just play the basics. Learn the basics. Sure. You know, it's funny that you say that because about about different approaches. And Steve Gadd was saying that, a thing that really made him approach drums differently is watching Chick Corea play drums. Mm-hmm. And he was like, wait a minute, this is, I, yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even have thought to, to approach it that way. That's right. You know? And he said that that was like one of his game changing moments. Yeah. Um, I actually, uh, you know, Todd, our singer and songwriter, um, you know, when we get together and kind of make music of the stuff he's written, I'll, I'll often um, approach him with, you know, what were you hearing? What, what was the rhythm? And, and try and get him to lay out a, a, a beat and a feel because of that, because it co- often comes from such left field that 
I wouldn't have thought of that way or approached it that way. And oftentimes it's better, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, a lot of my great influences weren't, weren't drummers, you know? Right. Um, musically. Um, you know, when I play drums, I, you know, I think of a monk, you know, on the sure, piano. Sure. Just the way he can make a song feel. Um, or, you know, Miles Davis and the style, you know? Mm-hmm. Um so you know, all those things do play in it. But but yes, I'm I'm a big fan of um, of um, non drummers um, and, and their rhythms. You know, it's being sure. an influence for sure. So who were some of your drumming influences? I know that that's hard to to pin down and and name a few of them. But I feel like everybody has like their guys. You know. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, um, I, I still am in love with the music. Um, American jazz music from the 20s through the 70s. You know, that mm-hmm. whole uh, Ellington through the uh, bebop era, through the jazz fusion era. Um, maybe it's because I, I kind of was a kid in the 70s, and and um, when I delved into uh, music that I thought was challenging and interesting, it, it came from that period. But, um, you know, so I still think about the bebop terms. I th- mm-hmm. Alvin Jones, you know, and the... Sure. Um, uh, you know, and Tony Williams and um, Art Blakey and Jimmy Cobb and Sonny Greer. And, you know, you can go through all the names. Al Foster, I'm a big Al Foster fan. Al Foster played um, in Miles' 70s fusion bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the 70s albums of Miles' that can be a little challenging to listen to because they're kind of out there. But his <laughs> yeah, when he played in Sonny Rollins' bands. Um, you know, Danny Richmond with Mingus. I'm a big Mingus fan. Mm-hmm. Still trying to figure out how you played that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, all the different parts and the time changes and the, uh, you know, so I, I go back, that's the music I listen to a lot. Um, but I'd say if I was to say, well, number one would be Steve Gadd, you know, how yeah. can you deny, you know, his feel <laughs> and, um, the fact that he, you know, everything from jazz through pop music, you know, and all that seventies pop music that I was listening to at the day, Hal Blaney, big fan, cause I listen to that music um, uh, you know, like I love some of these Steve Gadd, um, I go back to say an album like Streetlights of Bonnie Wright. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite drum records. Yeah. Listen to that record. There's very little drumming on that record, but try and play that record. Right. There's so much space <laughs> and everything feels so nice. You know yep. what I mean? I totally do. Cause Steve Gadd is, is one of my guys too. And I was, it's funny that you were mentioning that the space and everything, because I'll watch, I mean, there's a clinic that he does in Los Angeles. It's from like the 70s. And he makes one note sound so amazing, you know? Yeah. And he can he can play three notes in a span of, of five seconds and they sound huge <sighs> and they have so much feel and and determination and, and just, it's just amazing what he can do with space yeah. and time, you know? I totally agree. And it's probably another reason why... Um, I, I focus a lot on the rudiments because he was a very rudimental drummer. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way he used them in pop music, in particular, you you know you don't hear the rudiments, but but his patterns are all rudimental. Sure. You know? um, so he's a, you know of course if I could play like Vinny, I probably would um, because <laughs> right. the chops. But um, uh, I I'm also you know a big fan of rock drummers mm-hmm. because I love that music. And, you know, so, and that's really what I do with this band is straight up two and four right, and right. trying to make it feel good. Um, 
so I try and have a little Steve Gadd's uh, swing, but, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with, you know, a little ACDC rock. Right. You know what I mean? Hey, man, it, it worked for them for years, you know? Of course. <laughs> um, so it's amazing what you can do with, um, with like you said, just a, a couple, you know, with eighth notes. Sure. And, and a lot of, lot of space. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. So now, do you play any straight ahead stuff now, or I mean, are you do you have like a side thing going on with any straight ahead guys, or are you mainly just? Um, no, you know, my my goal someday is to do do kind of a jazz thing because mm-hmm. um, I love playing that music. But right. right now, you know, it's pretty much about the Big Head and the Monsters Band. We we this is our our baby, and we run it, and this is our business. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'll sit in with some buddies now and then. Um, uh, currently sitting with a band called Highway 50 every once in a while in, out of uh, Boulder. A uh, keyboard player from the band called The Samples. It's, it's him and some guys. And that's more of a reggae ska thing, which oh, cool. I'm doing because I want to play that style. Mm-hmm. I, I don't get a chance to play reggae, and I love reggae. Mm-hmm. Um, again, just the, the the different feel, the different, different groove. So usually if I'm spreading out and trying to do some different things, I'm trying to push myself and do stuff that I don't get to do. Sure. Because it always comes back and it helps me when I get back to, uh, you know, my two and four. Mm-hmm. So now, when you were when you were playing all of this jazz and you, you know you're, you're listening to all this music, and then so then you meet Todd in high school, and then all of a sudden it's like, it, was it like we're going to make this transition? We're going to start playing rock, or you're going to start playing rock, or were you already playing rock at the same time? I was playing rock at the same time because, of course, I was a fan, mm-hmm. you know. So when I, you know, at home when I was a kid, I'd be putting on Aerosmith records, you know, and right. playing to those or um, hard records or, um, you know, whatever was the flavor of the day. Um, so always been a rock fan. Um, when Todd and I and Rob first started playing, we were actually playing a lot of old fifties uh, R and B and soul. Um, it kind of set us apart in high school. Um, because here's this high school band playing Wilson Pickett and James Brown and, um, you know, some Elvis, some straight-up kind of 50s rock, rock right. and kind of stuff. Um, and that's kind of where we all bounded. We loved blues and a lot of roots music even at an early age. And I think that's the reason we're still playing together 30 years later is that we actually enjoy playing together and we enjoy the same styles of music and I guess have always had the same goal. Um, but, you know, it's funny, if you listen to our early records, the early Big Ed Todd records, um, you know, Midnight Radio and in particular, I listen to drumming, and it's just, I mean, I'm really trying to be a jazz drummer. I mean, right. the drumming is, I don't know what the drumming is, to be honest with you. But I, there was a lot of bravado, and I had a lot of confidence at the time. I look back and think, oh, man. Um, at the same time, I couldn't play that stuff now like that, you know? Right. Um, well, I think it's you're coming from a different perspective on it too. Yes, know? of course, but yeah. it, that's totally it. My headspace isn't the same, right? Um, and at the time, I think I was just trying to be, you know, the great, you know, the greatest drummer I knew, and somehow it was a mix of uh, jazz fusion and Ginger Baker and John Bonham, and you know, all thrown in there together. Right. Not that there's uh, anything wrong with any of that. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, a lot of people love that record. And I get yeah. a lot of comments from drummers who go, that, that record is one of my favorite drum records. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> I, <you know. laughs> well, that's when you just say, well, yeah, yeah that's, what I was, that's what I was going for. Oh, so. yeah, no, no. I, 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 of course, I've learned uh, 
That's why you're wrong. When right. someone's complimenting you, of course. <laughs> Don't ruin their buzz. Right, right. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny because I the fact that, that you guys started this band in high school and have made it this long, um, I, I know that there's a lot of listeners out there that are in bands, whether they're in high school or out of high school, and and they're trying to to make this a career. And so what was your path and how, how did you guys do it? And what advice would you have for, for somebody else that's in a band? Sure. Um, you know, in some sense, I think what we were fortunate is everything kind of just fell together naturally. I think one reason we're, we've been together so long is because we started out as buddies enjoying playing music together and hanging out together. And then as things grew, um, you know, everything else was kind of icing on the cake. We never really wrestled with a lot of the uh, issues that come up when things start getting big and you start getting into record contracts and you got a manager who's, you know, you got a fire and all that stuff and it causes stress and tension. Right. Um, and uh, for us, it was always like, hey, if they're still paying us to make noise, I'm I'm in, you know. Right. So we, we were always pretty laid back guys. And I also think that we, the three of us, um, also brought to the table skill sets that worked well together. You know, um, Robert, bass player, is a, a business mind. And I'll tell you, the best thing any band can have is somebody in the band that actually pays attention, reads the contracts, and cares about what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, you know, that's Rob. And then Todd is the artist and the writer. Um, and I'm kind of the, the diplomat in the middle that picks up all the pieces and deals with whatever you got to be dealt with. But, um, you know, that's the one thing about a band. You're not just playing music together. You're, you, in a sense, you do start running a business together. You are living together. You're, uh, so there, there's the skills of relationship skills, I think, come into play. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I guess, uh, so as far as advice, if you get into a band, um, you know, I guess that you know, be conscious of the fact that all the other elements besides the music are going to be uh, what more of your time is going to be spent on. Um, sure, we'd all love to just play all the time, and uh, we've tried to get away with that. In fact, I think in some sense our band would be bigger and more popular if we were a little more focused on uh, wanting it to be and less focused on just enjoying playing music together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, it's worked for us, you know. Um, having respect for each other is a big part of it. You're not always going to think alike, but it's, you know, but being able to stop and listen to what someone else thinks either musically or professionally or business wise or style is important. Um, and, uh, respecting them and their opinion is an important part of, of being in a band. Um, and then, you know, you know, not being too toxic. <laughs> That's a lot of it sure. too. Sure. Um, you know, the music field is not the only field that people like to imbibe in uh, in in uh, alcohol or, or other uh, recreational pleasures. But um, I've seen it take down a few of our peers, and and I get it. You mm-hmm. know, if you can't be responsible to uh, the team, or if you have your own personal toxicity that you haven't dealt with, um, it's not going to get you very far. Sure. But being a great guy, being being a really um, Team player, thoughtful, supportive is a big part of getting you far in the music business, I believe. I totally agree. You know, there's a lot of great players out there, a lot of talent that I wouldn't want to play in a band with them. 
Mm-hmm. You, know? you know, I've so. mentioned that numerous times on the podcast that you can be the greatest player in the world, but if you're a jerk, nobody's going to want to work with you. And there's somebody right down the street that is probably as good as you, if not better, that can exactly. come fill in the gig, you know? Exactly. I, I always would, would say, you know, I don't know if I'm gifted enough to be cocky. So, you know, because you're right. I could name 10 players that live in Denver right now that I, I look up to as players. And, they're, mm-hmm. and they'd love to be on the road and making a living playing music. Um, and they should be, you know, my opinion. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I, I take that seriously, being a, being a good person. And let's face it, music is a celebration. You know, it's about coming together and making something that moves people. Mm-hmm. And um, I think uh, when that's done from a positive, cohesive place, as a group, that's when it can be really powerful. I I agree. I so. totally agree. Now, speaking of, of a celebration and music being a celebration, uh, I'd like to get a little bit of the backstory on, on the records. Um, and Sister Sweetly was, you just celebrated the, what, 30th anniversary of that, right? That was the 25th anniversary. Or 25th anniversary, anniversary. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, the 25th or 20th, one of those. Uh, well, yes, we just celebrated the anniversary of that, right? Let me, I can add. Uh, that came out <laughs> in 93, so 2013 was the 20th anniversary. There you go. There you go. Right. At least I don't feel bad that I I didn't know exactly what the date was because you didn't either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just try not to pay attention to things sometimes. But yeah, there you go. 20 years on Sister Sweetly, which was that big breakout record. Right. That was the first um, record that Warner Brothers released and kind of brought us national. Had three top ten rock singles. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, rock radio in '93 played our music. Hmm. So, it was good for us. But yeah, yeah. If you turn out rock radio today, I think you'd be hearing more Godsmack and and uh, you know a more of an aggressive bent than Big Hit Time. Yeah, you're not. Anyway. You're def- it's definitely not an aggressive. You guys are definitely not an aggressive band. Uh, so, what was the what was the inspiration behind that album? Um, you know, uh, the way we work is Todd is a writer. Todd, more than even a singer, performer, song, uh, I mean, uh, guitar player, all of which he's fabulous at, he writes. Um, so he's always writing, you know. Mm-hmm. He's got, you know, two more records written if we wanted to pursue it. And so our process has always been, um, let's record Todd's music. We've been an outlet for his writing. Um, and that, uh, the Midnight Radio record, which was the record before Sister Sweetly, um, we were, which, which was technically our second record. We put one out before then called Another Mayberry. We went to Little A-Track Studio, and I think it cost us a couple thousand bucks we borrowed from our folks. And um, from the Midnight Radio record, <laughs> we approached, um, we, again, we're college kids. We didn't have any money. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this new technology out called DAT recorders, digital recorders. Mm-hmm. And... For like twenty five hundred bucks, you could buy one of those machines, and we thought, "Wow, that's cheaper than going to a studio and making a record." So let's just buy a DAT machine, and we spent um, basically about a year in our traveling around a van and living at home, just recording stuff on a two track DAT machine. That, and then we took a bunch of those tracks, and that became our midnight radio record. Hmm. Um, which is just live to two tracks, so you know it sounds like it. Right. I think that's kind of the charm of it too. There is no overdubs, remixes. Um, so, anyways, that record got popular in the college circuit. Um, college radio started playing the Midnight Radio record to our surprise, and it started spreading out kind of virally. Um, of course, this is pre-internet, right. um, and 
it got popular enough where, you know, we started traveling and playing college towns, and we were selling tickets, and we were selling CDs at the shows. And then next thing you know, um, we, we did bring on a management firm, the management company, because we were getting popular. Actually, they courted us because we were kind of the most popular band in the Denver area. Mm-hmm. And uh, then next thing you know, we get a call from Irving Azoff with who was starting a new label, a Warner's division called Giant Records, and he wanted to sign the band. Um, and in those days, pre-internet, when you sold CDs, labels were a little more lenient with uh, money and signing bands because they knew at the very least we could sell you know, 50,000 copies of a CD. If the band's on the road, they'll sell that in their shows because the only way to get the music is to buy the record. Right. Um, right. So... Um, they were interested because they saw that we were getting so much radio or played through college um, radio. And uh, so we, we were interested. And then uh, they put us in the studio up in Paisley Park, uh, Princeton Studio, with a, a producer named David Z, who just got off a big hit with the Fine Young Cannibals. He did their record that was a big smash and worked with Prince in the past. Hmm. And they, they made the Sister Sweetly record. Uh, which was, again, just a bunch of songs Todd had already written and we had ready to go. So um, I think the question was, what was the inspiration or thought behind that record? For us, there was nothing more than, well, we got a bunch of songs, let's make another record. Right. Um, <laughs> and uh, working with David was uh, really important to me to understand. That probably changed my style more than anything because he came from, as a producer, he came from the Prince camp, which is pretty straight-up drum machine, especially in those days. So everything was in time. And um, he kind of taught me how you can be funky with straight time, you know, mm-hmm. um, as Prince showed the world, you know. Um, <laughs> if it's in time and it's grooving, it is funky, and it feels great. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I started kind of dropping a lot of my, um, you know, Billy Cobham attempts and started going toward more of the straight rock drummer, funk drummer kind of feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they, that record, uh, I, to our surprise, came out of the box and was received by radio real well and kind of took us national and, you know, in many ways gave us the career we have today. That's awesome. You know, yeah. you mentioned that, that back in the day before the internet and all of that, uh, yeah, the record labels had this huge part in in giving the band some money, letting them record, pressing records, you know, helping them with all these things. And it's not, you know, it's not that way as much as it used to be by any means. Sure. And you know, for the for the listeners out there that are a little bit younger, the the landscape of the music industry has definitely changed. Um, much. And, you know, and I think Nirvana they got, I think they got like three hundred thousand for their record, and. It cost what ten ten thousand to record it or something like that, and then Probably. they and then they just split the rest. Yep, which Probably. they which you know they have to pay back. But if the out that's the crazy thing that always blew my mind about advances that you have to pay the music back. They recoup that off of your album sales, but right. if the album flops, you don't have to pay it back. That's right. Which I always would say, and that they even still would if if there was more record deals out there for bands. And there still is, obviously, if you're a Disney actor, you're going to, you know, they're pop. But you're right, the climate, the scenes change. But I, you know, I would always say, listen, 
if, take as much money as you can out of the label because the more they're investing in you and the more they've given you, the more they're going to work your record because they want to make your money back. Right. So, right. you know, don't be afraid of a big advance. Ask for more. Because mm-hmm. um, at the very least, they're, they're looking at the numbers. Um, and a lot of it, 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 it still is getting their attention to make them work it. Right. Um, but, yeah, you know, it's, it, it's interesting because... You know, I look back at, and, and think think of the '70s and all these these great arena acts and these stadium acts. Um, and in a sense, we've been fortunate; we've been able to kind of be a career band, so we've been able to do what they've did. But I'm envious because those in those days, you know, you you were selling vinyl. You didn't have the only way you're going to see the Allman Brothers in the '70s is go see them when they come to town. Or Fleetwood Mac. Right. That's why they were selling so many tickets. Mm-hmm. You couldn't hop online, look at YouTube, and go check out a concert. You didn't have HBO showing the Stones' recent tour. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and labels would sign acts for long periods and let them develop. You know, there wasn't a hit on every record. Fans were able to, to develop a sound and work on and, uh, material and kind of uh, grow as a band, but also as individual players and songwriters. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, if anything, the impetus of the day, you look at all those great Steely Dan records, was to make something non-commercial. And then it became yeah. commercial, thanks to FM radio. Yeah. So a wonderful period of, of rock music. Um, and then you got into, uh, like, our era of bands, 80s, 90s bands. We were kind of last generation pre-internet, and CDs were uh, a boon to record labels. They were making tons of money off of people rebuying their album collection on CD, you know, when right. um, CDs were cheap to make. So that was, uh, you know, the record label's way of scamming us. They basically said, okay, we got this new product that's going to sound better, debatable, easier to carry around, um, really cheap for us to make, and we're going to charge 16 bucks for it. Right. You're going to rebuy your own record collection because you want to have this digital format. So labels make tons of money. So it was a lot easier for them to go around and throw money out to bands and pick you up and and um, we were fortunate that we got, we were kind of part of the, that scene where, you know, we got a good advance and they put the money behind the record, the record broke, we did great. Now, um, you don't have so much of that on the industry side. But with the internet, you know, you can direct market to fans. You can kind of run your own show. Right. And as a, as a result of that, because the, the downside of the label years was you do have somebody involved with you on the project, meaning, you know, they want another hit. They want another song that sounds for us like Bittersweet. They want, um, they're going to put it on hold for six months to release it. You know, you're basically, in, in a sense, working for the man. Now, the man's mm-hmm. helping you out, too, but there's always that oil-water battle. And that sure. can get very taxing. And for our band in particular, there was a period there where Todd was ready to quit the business because he was a little fed up with, with the L.A. scene and all that was going on with the record label side of things. So, now... Um, we're happier as artists in what we're creating. I know Todd, as a writer, couldn't be happier. He doesn't have to write a certain kind of song. We direct market to fans. We get all the profit. We make a record we want, release it when we want. Um, you don't have the muscle of the machine. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me as a music fan, there's a lot more interesting music out there. I'm hearing bands doing this, you know, like the Denver music scene now is really vibrant. And there's tons of really great, interesting bands making interesting indie music and strange rock music and um and i i love that vibrancy and the fact there's so much different music to to hear 
Um, the challenge is how do you parlay that into making a living mm-hmm. and, and getting it out to the public? Um, and that's the one place for a band like us who's been established. The current situation, I think, works great. It's, uh, it's tougher, I think, to break and to get to the place where, like I say, you can be making enough money to, to do this as a, as a career. Um, but it can be done, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, one way is get out there and work, work the road, you know, play shows. Sure. I still believe the cream rises to the top, you know. Um, be internet savvy, you know. Um, be creative with how you run your, your website and marketing to fans, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still a music industry, and they need you. They need bands, and they need musicians to, to uh, you know, to make a buck. As much as they make you feel like maybe you're fortunate they're looking at you or working for you, baloney, you're, you know, you're the goods. So um, just be smart of it and think of it as running a business. And mm-hmm. in, in, in sometimes you have more freedom, you know. Yeah. And it, it, it's it's totally running a business. And the more that you put into it, the more you're going to get out of it. And, you know, it's like if you own a business and you have a really, really great product, if you're not marketing the product and you're not, you know, you're not getting it to the consumer, then then what's what's the good of making it then? What's the point? You know, right. so. Um, and I love the the fact that the Internet is out there now and there's all all of these different tools that you can use to help get yourself out. And, uh, the, and like you said about touring, I remember talking to Stanton Moore and he was saying, you know, if you really want to, if you're, if you have a band and you want it to, you know, you want to do it for a career, get in a van for 10 yep. years and tour and see where you're at in 10 years, you know, and I guarantee you'll be a lot farther or, you know, where you want to be. Yep. Um, it's just take, takes a little bit of, a little bit of time and, and dedication and, uh, and like you said, being savvy and business savvy and stuff like that, it all plays a part. I totally agree. I think, I think especially if you're a band and you're trying to break as a band, and, and uh, there's, you know, it's all about getting out there and getting to the people. Um, you know, if you're a player, if you're you know, just a drummer and you're looking for, to make a career in playing drums, um, you can join a band. Uh, you can join many bands. You can, you know, if you, depending on how good you are, you can, you know, there's still, uh, still a studio scene in L.A. or New York. You can move out and, or Europe or, you know, and become a, a player, get on a TV show, mm-hmm. you know. Um, there's all these performance TV shows now. That guy who plays drums for that show, the voice is phenomenal. He's a great drummer. Yeah. You know, um, and uh, so there's, there's outlets like that. Um, and there's still our pop-acts. You know, mm-hmm. Taylor Swift looks for a drummer. She needs a drummer. You can go down to Nashville and audition. So um, I'm, I'm still encouraged. I'm optimistic. People want music. Sure. And, um, you know, I get a little I get a bit I get a little bit upset a lot of times when people say, well, the music industry is dead. Well, the music industry is not dead. It's just changed and you have to adapt. And I think a lot of people are more concerned about that it's not the way that it used to be rather than being concerned with, okay, how am I going to adapt and how am I going to, how am I going to face this and, and conquer it? Agreed. And in some sense, I think the current situation is better if you want to take it into your own hands. You have more control. Um, you know, if you want to put the work into getting, getting the right website and getting the word out there, like I said, you have an access through the internet to reach a lot of people. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, we sell records overseas in Japan and Europe, and we wouldn't be over there. I mean, we travel a bit overseas, but we really don't put much time into it. But now we're spread out. We're, you know, we got fans from Australia going, I just picked up this record. And it's like, whoa, where'd that come from? Well, you know, somebody saw, sent them a song, they saw a YouTube video, and 
So in some sense, it's opened us up for the world as our market. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago uh, with my fiance, and I was saying, I just, I just finished this podcast and posted it up, and five minutes later, somebody sent me an email from Sweden and was like, hey, man, I just saw that you posted this new podcast. I can't wait to listen to it. And the fact that I can do that, you know, I was at my house. I did it in my home office, you know, no spent no money on it, had have no company behind me putting it out. It's not on TV or anything like that to the mass, you know, to the mass market of, you know, from the man, so to speak. And this and this guy in Sweden can look at it or and listen to it, which that amazes me. I know you're a star. See, (laughs) you you took the reins. You're 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 doing it. But actually, I I have to say, I I I love what you're doing because I am a fan of drummers and and, and drum and music. So it's great that I can pop onto your um, podcast and you know listen to Jared Robinson and some of these guys that I respect and admire Mm -hmm. hear their stories. So, well, uh, thank you, man. I appreciate it. It'll grow. Bad. Yeah, it's getting it's getting there. It's definitely uh, getting to getting a lot of of ears and getting a lot of attention, which I I appreciate and I love it. So you know, I'm I'm not going to stop doing it. So good. So let's talk a little bit about about gear for all the gearheads out there. I know that uh, a lot of people always ask me, you know, oh, you never ask the guys that you're interviewing what gear they use, and it's not that I don't care about gear. I just never think about it. So so what's your what's your tour setup usually? Well, I play. Uh DW, um, uh, sorry, um, yeah, I play, I play DW drums mm-hmm. and saving cymbals, bolso drumsticks, um, remo heads, so those, those are all my, that's my team, mm-hmm. um, big fan of all of those products, I'm a big DW guy, I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what, they, the thing I love about DW drums is they stay in tune, and that's mm-hmm. a big deal for me, uh, especially playing the rock drums. Um, hitting, I'm hit, I hit the snare pretty hard, and I, I I have a real love for Ludwig snare drums, and I have some great vintage Ludwig snare drums, but I just need a drum that, that the uh, lugs are going to stay in tune and be able to function through a show. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I love the, the, the Bozo sticks. I've, I've become, um, you know, the bamboo sticks at first were, it's, it's a different game playing with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing I learned is if you start playing in the range of the stick, it's beautiful. It's like you're playing the stick as much as you're playing the drum. It's very musical because of the way that the, uh, the bamboo feels in your hand and kind of vibrates. Mm-hmm. Um, so it amazes band, me that you play with marching sticks. Yeah, well, that's I do use the marching sticks, and one thing I also like about, uh, or I've come to like about the the Boso marching sticks is I can use a bigger stick, but it's a little lighter mm-hmm. because it's bamboo. It's a little lighter material than say like a hickory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the feel of a big stick in my hand. And with this gig, um, it's a rock thing, and I'm and actually I started because tr- I tried out all the different uh, sizes. Right, and it it it, it kind of helped me pull back a little bit and play a little less by sticking to the bigger sticks, and I that wanted that. You know what I mean? I kind of wanted to kind of become more of a a a two four rock drummer. Mm-hmm. Um, now I've played with them for so long that I mean I play jazz with them. I play this reggae gig with them. <laughs> I use them, um, and I also love That's the nuts. tone it gives the drum. The bigger stick actually sounds different coming off the drum. Yeah, that makes sense too. Yeah, 
It Fuller has, sound and has a depth to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, it's I guess uh, one of my quirks, but I like playing with big sticks. Hey man, know? whatever works for you, you know. It's yeah. like Steve Jordan plays with twenty-two inch hi hats or whatever. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever so. works for you. And uh, I love the Sabian cymbals. I, play, I use some of the darker rock cymbals. Um, uh, they're double A line and um, they're metal crashes. Mm-hmm. They sound more like gongs. Um, and it's a little different because, especially when you're playing some of the lighter, uh, you know, I, I love Paiste cymbals. I love that kind of broken glass kind of sound they have. They have a wonderful shimmer to them. But. There's a dryness and a heaviness that comes when you're using these heavier, bigger, you know, these uh, darker symbols mm-hmm. that I think um, subtly affect the sound of the music that makes it a little different, and people don't realize why. You know what I mean? It adds some depths and balls to it. Right. And with the way Todd writes, he writes a lot of... Um, he, he, he writes pop music. He writes... It's blues-based rock, pop music, but there's a lot of... Um, not necessarily ballads or mellower stuff, but he does have feminine energy to his music. And I think the drums, I want to add masculinity. I want depth. I think a heavier, darker sound suits his, uh, his writing and his songs and, and kind of is the sound I want the band to have. Mm-hmm. I use a 24-inch kick. I was going to ask you, because when I, when I saw you, the last time you were in town, uh, I, know, I was looking at your kit, and I was like, that thing looks bigger than a 22. Yeah. Um, I like the big, I like the rock sizes. I go twenty four. I've got a thirteen, uh, sixteen, and eighteen. Mm-hmm. And nice. then my main snare right now is a um, uh, six, uh, five and a half. Now I think it's a six by fourteen. But I think I'm going to scale it down to a five and a half by fourteen. Okay. Because something else I've kind of learned to like, and maybe it's because I'm using the bigger sticks, is I like the the heads to be a little detuned. I don't like the, I like to play softer heads. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's not... I don't More like cushion out of them? Yes. Uh, kind of real fat, you mm-hmm. know? So I'd rather use a thinner, smaller snare and detune it. It just gives you that really kind of cool 70s tough guy sound. Right, you know? right. Mm-hmm. Um, and as much as I love some deep snares, it, it gets a little too deep when you start, you know, detuning it. It, it gets lost and gets muddy, at least for what we're doing. Sure. You know? Yeah, if you have you know something deeper, like a deeper you know a deeper snare, like a even if it's like a seven and a half or something like that, and you keep that thing detuned, man, it's gonna get really, it's gonna get really out of control there. You know. Yeah, I've tried, and I've had sound guys go, you know, you might really want to think about tuning your snare drum up a little bit. <laughs> you know, we're not Pink Floyd here. You know. Right. Right. Maybe if we get maybe if we get to play in arenas, it might work because you can just you know really push it through. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I I I I agree. You know, it can get kind of muddy for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, I would change the topic real quick. I I have one question. I remember when we were when you were here in town, we were talking backstage about a project that you had worked on and. Forgive me, because I forget exactly what it was, but it was with some old blues artists that you were playing with. Yeah, that was awesome. Can what was that? Because I, yeah. I got home and I was like, man, I gotta, I gotta call him and ask him what, what that was, because I wanted to check it out and I like totally blanked on it, but I wanted to talk yeah. about it. I want, I, ha- I have you here as a captive audience, yeah. so I want to talk to you about it. Well, that was a, um, a kind of a little side project that. Um, 
It actually came about because, um, boy, a couple of years ago was the 100th anniversary of Robert Johnson's birth, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and Robert Johnson is kind of considered, um, you know, he's not the first bluesman by any means, but, you know, as far as uh, the recording uh, contemporary rock blues world, you know, he's kind of the, like the, the early guy. foundation. Yeah. Song, as a songwriter in particular. Um, and I guess the lore. So... Uh, we got approached to do a tour. They um, they wanted to do a um, this promoter wanted to do a tour with some of the old guys, the old Delta guys that were still around in honor of Robert Johnson, the blues playing Robert Johnson music, and somehow was a fan of our band and thought these guys would be a great backing band because we always had kind of blues roots and always you know have done some blues in our set and. So we were asked to do it, and we were like, jumped at it. A great opportunity. And the tour and the album, we did an album down in, in Memphis, and the tour was us. We had um, David Honeyboy Edwards on the tour, who unfortunately passed away last year, but mm-hmm. at the time, in his 90s, was the last performing, living um, blues artist from, that was a peer of Robert Johnson. He knew Robert Johnson. They hung out. Mm-hmm. Um his cousin dated Robert Johnson. You know, he's got great stories um, of the day. And then uh, Hubert Sumlin was on the tour, who was Helen Wolf's guitar player forever, and um, really special guy. Um, he passed away, unfortunately, also last year. Um, uh, James Cotton did some dates. Charlie Muscle White did some dates nice. with us. Um, and the thing is, they're all, they're all from the Delta. Born and raised Delta. That was kind of the focus. Um, uh, uh, Cedric Burnside was on that tour. We did double drum kit. Cedric is L.L. Burnside's grandson. He's a drummer. Oh, awesome. And um, a guy named uh, Lightning Malcolm, who's a younger Delta blues artist. And then a whole bunch of other guys who sat in different shows. But did a record about Robert Johnson material. Um, we called the, the group the Big Head Blues Club because it was kind of a side project. We wanted to be a little different. And um, did a whole tour, and it was really... Really amazing. It was amazing for us to play the music, but also to play with those guys, spend time with those guys, learn from those guys. Um, it was great for me to play a double drum set set up with Cedric, who plays a totally different style because he, he does come from the Delta, played on his grandfather's stuff as a kid, um, and just be, I guess, uh, educated in the blues, let's put it that way. Sure. From, from the cats. It's not like you're reading yeah. it out of a book or just listening to it, you know, but you're saying Right. There. So we, we felt we were very fortunate to get to do it, and so it kind of came our way. We jumped at it, and we're actually currently talking about um, a uh, doing another Big Eye Blues Club project, just trying to figure out what it's going to be. Maybe Chicago guys, I don't know. So now, did you guys cut a record with them? We did uh, cut a record. It's okay. called 100 Years of Robert Johnson, Big Head Blues Club. We did it in five days down in Memphis. Um, and we, it was crazy because none of us had met. We flew down. Um, and basically, uh, we all got in one room. It was a one-room studio. And kind of threw out ideas of songs and Robert Johnson tracks he wanted to do. We'd mess with it. Find a groove, jump in, everybody would play, and we go, great, let's move on to the next one. So the record, the, the rhythm tracks were put, you know, three days, we did all the, the rhythm tracks. That's awesome. So the whole idea was to do it old school, not spend a lot of time on anything, not, no fuss on it, 
Um, in fact, a lot of those tracks, actually, B.B. King was on that track, too. Um, <laughs> he did Crossroads with us. And, uh, you know, it was a total just throw it out there and listen, and it was great. I really think there's a kind of a magic to those tracks because of the fact that, um, you know, they weren't overthought, and we all just kind of got thrown together in one room, said hi, shook hands, and started playing. Um, great learning lesson, and uh, I'm very proud of that record. Good. I'm going to – I'll list the uh, the link to that so that people can check it out. I, I guess they can cool. get it from your site or through Amazon or something. Yes, of course. Okay. Yeah, our site and Amazon carry sure. Okay, I'll link to that on on your show notes page. I'm not exactly sure what number podcast you'll be, but it, the listeners know they can just go on drummersresource.com and just search Brian Nevin and your interview will come right, right up. And then I'll put all the notes for, for that. And also for your other records and uh, most recently your newest record that came out in February, Black Beehive, uh, which you've been on tour currently supporting that record. How's the tour been going with that? Right. Actually, this record is, um, you know, our favorite um, that we've made. Um, big fan of this record. Uh, got a chance to work with Steve Jordan. He produced it, which he's one of my heroes and idols. Mine, drummer. too. I'm trying to get him on the show, but... Oh, well, yeah, he should do this. He's a busy guy. He's a rock star. Yeah, I know. Um, I know. But he's great. I'll tell you, uh, working with him and getting to spend time with him, I'm a bigger fan of him as a person. Great <laughs> musical mind, real talent, a great guy. Um, and I really appreciate how he produced the project and how he saw, I mean, when I, when I walked in and when we met and we talked about the drumming, I said, Steve, you play drums on this record. He's like, no, you're playing drums. I said, well, in my, in my book, the the best drum in the room plays. So, um, I did get him on one track though. I kind of had to count him in because I really wanted to see him play. (laughs) And actually we played one track with double drum. Him and I both played a kit together. Oh, that's awesome. And that was really cool because I'm like, you know, I got, I got to watch him and see him play, and you know, we talked a lot of drums. And were you, you know, on your way in, were you like, holy crap, I gotta play with Steve Jordan here? <laughs> you know, I was really excited about it, and and yeah, of course, you know, there's a side of you that goes, well, you're playing to someone that's the one, you know, you you, you know, is a hero of yours actually in a sense. I mean, I really, I remember the first time I saw Steve play, I was a kid, and mm-hmm. I was watching the Letterman show um, in the afternoon. This is when Letterman had, was on NBC in the afternoon. And I remember watching this guy play drums with the house band. And I'm like, who is that guy? And he just caught my eye and the way he played and his feel. And I kind of started following his career. And I shared that story with Steve and who said, you know, that's funny, he remembers that. Because he said, I, I actually sat in, I, I was filling in that day for that, that Letterman show. But he went on to do that Saturday Night Live band and, you know. Oh, Really? Yeah, that's for, that's pretty funny. It was just like a, a one-off thing. Oh, yeah, exactly. But anyways, I love his feel. Um, and the cool thing about Steve is he, he um, you know, he's, he's steeped in Motown and Stax and all that great music and that feel. He plays, he's a rock drummer, but he plays with soul. And he knows soul music and he knows mm-hmm. jazz music. And, you know, he's just an all-around great guy and a great player. So, yeah, it'd be great to if I If I... If I cross paths or talk to him, I'll tell him to, to give you a call to his podcast. I, well, I, w- I would really, really appreciate that. He is yeah. definitely one um, of my drumming heroes as well. But I know he's busy. He's, he's mm-hmm. out like with Claps, I think, now, and he's, he's got his John Mayer stuff. He's probably producing a couple projects. And, right. Um, but anyways, uh, so love the record because um, 
So, oh, you act about, yeah. So, of course, I'm a little nervous. I'm just coming and going, you know, but to be honest, I was more about excited to learn. I'm like, I'm just going to use this as a great, you know, chance to learn. And I'm actually proud of the fact, another record we did in a week. We, we did the whole, all the way, to, we, we started in, again, we used a one-room studio um, because we wanted, we loved the feel and how it worked with the Big Ed Blues Club. So we, we loved that idea of let's go in, not put a lot of time into it, and just play music. Track and go. Steve loves loves tracking like that too. You know, he he's a drummer in Keith Richards' band, and the Stones and Keith come very much from that perspective of of vibe. It's all about vibe. Mm-hmm. Feels good, move on. Don't put too much thought into it. Right, right, right. So I we we started with the idea that we'd spend um, three three days together in a studio and just throw some ideas out, kind of um, you know, previous to recording the record. We went out and in five days did the whole, all the rhythm tracks. Mm-hmm. And none of us thought that, would, you know, we were actually using that time to kind of um, work up the material. So I'm really proud of the fact that, um, obviously, if the drums were a problem, it wouldn't have, we wouldn't have been able to bang it out in the week, and Steve would have made that very clear. So I'm proud of the fact that, obviously, I did all right. Yeah. Um, and uh, just try to pick up a lot about his, the way he thinks compositionally about drums. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's a lot of what I think about these days when I'm playing. Like, why are you doing what you're doing? What What is the the part you'd be playing, and why are you playing that part? Um, and it, we're talking simple things. You know, is the kick drum on one, or is it on the end of one? And does it drop out during this part? You know, we're kind of Steve is very basic in his drumming philosophy, and I agree with him. If a good, if you got a good song, make it feel good, stay out of the way, and let right. the song sing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the record was a blast. Um, it was an honor, and the tour is great because I love the fact with this record, it's our tenth record. We have a lot of material, so we have kind of a lot of ammo to change up the sets every night mm-hmm. and still make them strong. And this record is a, a lot more swampy kind of bluesy rock. Um, so it's added an element we kind of need in our live show. You know, we kind of got the the pop rock hits, and you got some of the experimental indie stuff we tried on a few records and now we have a foundational album that is straight up blues rock nice you know? i admittedly have not heard this is the only record of yours that i have not heard so i'm gonna oh check it out i, I gotta i gotta pick me up a copy of it definitely all right um great because i mean i've loved every other record that you guys have done so thank you yeah well there's a song in there called hubert's dream which todd wrote for hubert summer when he passed away um and that, that's the track where Steve's playing the brush part, I'm playing the drum kit part, and uh, it's a great brush part. Yeah, here it is right here, Hubert's Dream, number eight. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for, for taking all this time to chat with me, man. It's, it's Like I said, I've been listening to you guys for, for years, so it's been really a pleasure to not only to chat with you today, but just to get to know you over you know the last year and a half or so. And and uh, it's it's just it's really great. It's It's amazing how things start to, you know, or come full circle and listening to your band when I was younger to now, to now being friends with you, which is, it's, it's cool. a great honor and pleasure, man. I really do appreciate it. 
Well, you're welcome, Nick, and, and thanks for taking the interest. I appreciate it. Absolutely, man. And for all the listeners out there, do yourselves a favor. Pick up the new record, Black Beehive, and also go check out Big Head Todd and the Monsters on tour coming to a, a town near you. I just noticed that your uh, your Atlantic City show was canceled. I'm, I was going to be down in the Philly area and was going to try to check that show out, and they closed the casino. They closed the casino. Well, yeah. Atlantic City's closing down. A billion, so, yeah, it's a, bummer. a billion dollar casino. I know. If you've seen the photos of it, it's a beautiful place. It's We're amazing. That gig. It's amazing. Right. And what they did, not to get off tangent, but they or get off on a tangent, they uh, they opened it up and and they said that they didn't want to be a destination for gamblers. They wanted it to be like a vacation resort. And I don't know. If, have you ever been to Atlantic City before? There's like yes. It's yes. there's nothing there but gambling. You know what I mean? It's not like a destination for anyone if you're not gambling. So I think they kind of shot themselves in the foot with that. So. Well, next time you're in town, we'll we'll, we'll, we'll cross paths again. We'll be on the East Coast. Good deal. Good deal. Brian, thank you again, man. I really do appreciate it, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Cheers, man. All right. Thanks, brother. See So there you have it, Mr. Brian Nevin from Big Head Todd and the Monsters. Such a super cool guy. Super nice to talk to him. And uh, I love his, his the way that he looks at things because a lot of guys that have been in the industry for a while are kind of uh, jaded towards the fact that the the old system doesn't work anymore. And he's hip to the to the new way of of marketing yourself and the new way of selling albums and getting across to your fans, which is really cool. And be sure to check them out at BigHeadTodd.com. And check out drummersresource.com, facebook.com forward slash drummersresource, on Instagram at drummersresource, and on Twitter at drummersrsource. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I do appreciate it. And thank you all who attended my webinar last Thursday. I really appreciate it, and there'll be more of those coming out soon. So be sure to check back often, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.